Please turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We continue our study in the upper room. My title of my message is Darkness in the Room. We'll see why as we go along. We find, though, that there will be a dramatic shift in the mind, and a shift in the mood. The atmosphere changes. Jesus, verse 21, was troubled in spirit, as we will see once again. And Jesus said in verse 31, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. What changed? We say, what changed? Well, Judas would leave the room. Now, with the betrayer gone, Jesus would give His final teaching to to those who were truly His. One of the themes we have been encountering in John's Gospel is the contrast between light and darkness. We see this continued with Judas the betrayer. Just read these verses first. Verse 21. Let's begin there. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then Entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Amen. I will pray one more time. God, I seek your help this morning. I need you. God, please work through me. Please use me to preach your word this morning. Give us great understanding of your text. Help me to be faithful to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have several points for us this morning, but we consider this scenario when Jesus is at the table with his disciples. They're eating. He has said things to him before. He has mentioned of his betrayal before. But here, a bomb is dropped on this table. This, what Jesus says, that one of them would betray him. 
Perhaps we have experienced similar circumstances in our lives. Maybe at a meal, maybe sitting with someone and we're going to have a discussion. We have no idea what's about to be said. Maybe not even suspecting what is going to be said. And then they drop a tremendous bomb and tell us something. And we're shocked. Shocking news indeed had just been laid down to these disciples. And then the antagonist would leave the scene. Then there would be a sigh of relief. And the spirit of unity would be there once again. But Judas has not let has not left the room. Indeed, darkness is still in the room. And we see first and foremost this broken-hearted betrayal. Broken-hearted betrayal. As we mentioned last time, Jesus being troubled in spirit. And he testified and would say something. We touched on this verse and we began with it this morning. Jesus at the table with his disciples. Judas, one of those disciples, as we know, was a betrayer. Jesus, agonizing turmoil in his spirit, a preview of the excruciating turmoil he would experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus will use this same verb in verse 1 of chapter 14, shortly after Judas leaves the scene. In chapter 14, verse 1, which we will get there, but not today, Lord willing, Jesus will tell his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Here Jesus is troubled in his spirit, and he will go on to tell the disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And in verse 27 as well, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Same verb. Let us pack this away in our mind and in our hearts for when we get there. Jesus is in full control of the situation, but is not unmoved by what was taking place. This similar inner turmoil Jesus experienced that was described in chapter 11 after the death of Lazarus. When Mary was weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. The Lord suffered at his betrayal of Judas. It hurt him. He knows what it means to be betrayed. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. First Peter says this. So Jesus knew what it felt, the emotions of being betrayed. He was not unmoved by this. Oftentimes we focus on the deity of Christ and forget his humanity. How do we respond when we are betrayed? Betrayed perhaps because of who we are in Christ. 
or betrayed just minding our own business. Bitterness, anger, revenge. Sometimes, oftentimes, perhaps that's how we are prone to respond in our indwelling sin with our hearts that are still prone to to go this way. Or we could go to the Lord who was betrayed and seek comfort from Him and say, You know, O Lord, you know. You've been there, O Lord. You know. So Jesus, as He is being troubled in spirit, He testified and said something. The word in the original here, uh, in the Greek, uh, where we get the word martyr, martyreo. We get the word martyr from this, so this word testified. Jesus is making a solemn affirmation here. He is testifying, and what again do we see him say? Truly, truly, I say to you, I tell you the truth. Very important, profound statement is coming. The emphatic statement is here. One of you will betray me. Jesus says this while being troubled in spirit. This is the third time, I believe, Jesus referred to the betrayer in this time in the upper room. Verse 10, and you are clean, but not all of you. Verse 18, I do not speak, says the Lord, of all of you. And then here, one of you will betray me. Once this is said, once this is laid on the table, the relationships change. And the way the disciples interact with one another possibly would change too. Now there are 11 who are true and one who is a betrayer. They all had one thing in common for sure, a relationship with Jesus, but now they realize one of these who had a relationship with Jesus was a different type of relationship. It was not genuine. It was not real. Again, we may be prone to gloss over the humanity of Jesus with the assumption perhaps he was not bothered by this, but he was. Hebrews 4 tells us he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Our high priest who can identify with us so closely He has been there. If anyone ever knew the pain of sorrow and betrayal, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he said, one of you, it was like a bolt of lightning hit that place. A shot across the bow. It was a stunning blow. Notice the reaction of the disciples. And we're going to have, it's, it behooves us to go to the synoptics 
to Mark, then Luke, then Matthew to get the full account of this. And so we'll do that to to lay the, the backdrop for us this morning. Go to Mark chapter 14 first. Mark chapter 14, we'll begin in verse 18. And as we're turning there, I'll just read verse 22 from our text. As the disciples began looking at one another, we picture the scene. Looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. They were glaring at one another in complete bewilderment. Look at Mark 14, chapter 14, verse 18. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and say to him, one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would not have been good for that man. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 21. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 21. And look, this, the Lord's Supper, Jesus gives instructions on that. Then he says in verse 21, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is being betrayed. And they began to discuss amongst themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. What a time to talk about this. Well, who's going to be greatest? Well, one of you is going to to betray me. And then they start arguing about who's going to be greatest in his kingdom. Now go to Matthew. And we'll end here and go back to John 13. But Matthew 26 and verse 22 Well, verse 20, Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who betrayed me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man even if he had not been born. Why the repetition? Why are we going through this? Well, look at verse 25. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. 
Judas knew full well that it was him. And still, he says to him, surely not I. As we turn back to John 13, we're reminded that the disciples spent approximately three years with Jesus, day in, day out, living with Jesus. Yet Judas was not born again. He did not turn to Christ. Even after this encounter. So there are some takeaways for us here. These are a bit of reminders for us, but nevertheless, we need to understand this. The unbeliever needs more than one example of how to live for eternal life. Judas had the perfect example in his midst, day in, day out. He was spending much time with the greatest example that ever lived. He heard the Sermon on the Mount and all the other messages that the rest of the disciples heard. Judas witnessed the miracles. He was there. He received on-the-job training. Yet, he was not saved. Living, examples of living before a lost world is not enough. Consider what the late James Boyce says on this. If we think that men and women are going to be converted by the way we live, we are going to be disappointed. If we think that they they are going to be converted, even by bringing them into our congregation and exposing them to the teachings of Scripture, we are going to be disappointed. What the lost person needs is regeneration. But let me be clear. We are to live in such a way as examples before others, that it does not contradict what we say when we preach the truth. And by all means, we are to bring people to church that are lost, or they, we are not sure where they're at, so that they may sit under the Word of God. But let us not forget, they must have this radical transformation by the Spirit of God in order to be saved. So we cannot see inside someone to see their heart to determine, well, are they elect or are they not? At times this can be difficult to discern. With that said, there are certain things that God has given us to enable us and to assist us. Primarily, we consider one's fruit, do we not? We examine the fruit of one another. We see the fruit of one another as we go through life. A good tree produces good fruit. Jesus, Judas, excuse me, Judas himself proved to be a bad apple himself. Judas was a pretender. His outward actions gave the disciples, though, no reason to suspect him. As we consider today, and I was researching this, as there has been a a recent court case, sometimes when court cases are big, I'll pay attention, curious, I see the legal process, how it's supposed to go, and to see how one can just put his hand on the Bible or her hand on the Bible, I'll tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, they do, they say. I remember when, most of us remember when lying under oath was a big deal. It still is a big deal in a courtroom. 
But as I was researching, just curiosity, how the world defines compulsive lying, or as the world defines pathological liars, and the world seeks to uh, define it in some of the attributes you see. You know, when you look at something online, you say, what are the, um, the manifestations of such and such thing, the symptoms or whatnot? Oh, does so-and-so have the flu? Does so-and-so have this or that or this diagnosis? And there's like 10 symptoms and you see four out of 10, you say, okay, maybe they have this or whatever it may be. And so the world tries to provide this this insight, but then it also tries to provide this remedy and a reason for such things as being a unrepentant liar. Well, the Bible calls that evil, calls it wicked, and said all liars will have their part in the lake of fire for those who do not repent. So when I think of Judas and those who are cut from the same cloth after Judas... It makes me think of the pathological liars, compulsive liars. I've known some in my life in quote-unquote ministry. In Florida, not here, you would not even know the person's name. I would, we don't even say the name of this individual. We use the initials of the name because of the post-traumatic stress disorder of how this person could do such a thing and say such a thing and people would believe him. And he could talk himself out of a paper bag. Just talk, 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 and boom, you could say, oh, this is something new. Oh, I invented that five years ago. That kind of liar. But make you believe it. Make you doubt your own self. This is how Judas was. He did just not stumble upon the the supper that day and say, well, you know what? I think the betrayal is at hand here. This was cultivated in his life. This is who he was. It's scary to think that the disciples did not know. Let us learn from that. Be on guard. They could not see his dark and deceiving heart. Only God could. God knows. This also gives, God also gives his people various levels of spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. We did a study recently at the house. We went through a book on discernment. Uh, It was beneficial in, in, in some ways. But discernment is something that is given, but it's also something that needs to be cultivated continually in the life of the believer. First John 4 says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Discernment is, is crucial. It is very important for the Christian. That way, when we hear of something going on, like a, a revival... Or, or something of those sorts, we don't just jump right in and say, wow, this is the greatest thing. Here it is. No, we step back. We exercise discernment. Or when an organization spends millions to promote a message of Jesus that's not a biblical message, calling Jesus things such as an influencer... 
you'll be able to say, well, hang on here. What's wrong with that picture? Not by my opinion, but by the, the word of God says. Discernment. That way when Judas's do come alongside of us, when Judas's are in the pulpit, we pray for discernment. God, by all means, let me see this, please. So there was the betrayal of the, uh, the broken-hearted betrayal. Secondly, we see John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, consistently close to Christ, consistently close to Jesus Christ. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Okay, so the table setting, as we know, as we understand, as we've probably seen pictures, um, the, the table, a U-shaped table, The host was at the head of the table, the center of the table, which would be Jesus in this this event. Those at his immediate side of the host were positions of honor, such as what we would call an esteemed guest. Who is the esteemed guest for the evening, right? John, the disciple who Jesus loved, as he called himself, was at Jesus' right hand, able to lean on Jesus' bosom. He was, or chest. They would lean on their left elbow and use their right hand to get food from the table. No, it's not to prevent gluttony. At that, It was one hand at a time. That's just how they laid, how they presented themselves. They reclined at a very low table. Everyone was seated in such a way so that they could lean into uh, the chest of the one on the left. Now, they didn't always eat like this. This was a formal meal. It was expected that they would eat like this. The place of immediate honor would be to Jesus' left. At Jesus' left was either Peter or Judas Iscariot. Consider that. In this cultural context, to take food off of one's own plate and give it to a guest was a gesture of showing favor. Ruth, chapter 2, I'll just read it for us once again, verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz and Ruth were there. He said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. She was at a place of honor. Judas also at a place, possibly being right to the left side, of honor. So Simon Peter gestured to to John and said to him, Tell us who it is. Tell, tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. Of course, Peter, we, we cannot be 100% sure, at least I'm not 100% sure where Peter was seated, but he had to have been close enough to nod to John and ask the question. Also, Judas was close enough to where Jesus could speak to him without being overheard. Remember Matthew 26? Judas said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. So he, verse 25, John, 
the disciple whom Jesus loved, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Close to Jesus. That's the point for us, the takeaway. Consistently close to Christ. It is said of John that he was a young man, possibly even a teenager. So close to Jesus. Near Jesus. Near enough to Jesus to be comfortable to ask questions of the Lord. What a great spiritual application for us. Staying so close to the Lord that in anything comes up in our life, we say, God, how is this or why is this? Laying it, spreading it out before the Lord. And as I've mentioned before, oftentimes when I study things out for the sermon, God deals with me in a certain way that has to do with the sermon. So God has been dealing with me my heart. And I've had to lay things out before the Lord as I would seek to draw near to Christ myself. But we see that there's a deal, thirdly, a deal with the devil. A deal with the devil. And this is Judas's deal with the devil. Verse 26, 27. Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Okay, so Jesus answered this by action. That's the way he points out to who the traitor is. By action. By implication is that John was the one who the answer was given to. John was the one who was asked. John seems to be the one who was given the answer. He was the one who heard it, being right next to Jesus. The implication also, as well, is that John now knew something about Judas. So we may ask the question why didn't Jesus just answer and say, It is Judas? It's him. It's a good question. Well, I sought a lifeline to to answer this more uh, beneficially for us. Hendrickson, in his commentary, suggests the following answer. It was in order to impress upon the latter the enormity of his crime, that it may serve as an additional warning. Judas was ready to betray the one out of whose very hand he had been fed. This is the expression, you bit the hand that fed you, taken to the extreme. The morsel was not just any random piece of bread. It was a smaller piece of bread. I read a few places that they said it could have possibly been some type of meat. Seems like bread. Although, that had a specific purpose. And here... As we read this, as we study it, we understand this specific purpose. Verse 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. The only time that Satan is mentioned in the Gospel of John, 
we see in Luke chapter 22, verse 3, I'll just enter it, uh, I'll just read it for you. No need to turn there. Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and offered to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them, apart from the crowd. That was Luke 22, verse 3, for the reference in 4, 5, and 6. This was a different time than when the supper was started or was taking place. In John chapter 13, verse 27, we see Satan also entered into Judas then. So which one is it? When? Both times Satan entered and, and left and came back? Or do we need to study this out further to understand this in our minds? I know I did. It's interesting that we do not find in the scriptures of individuals that are habitually possessed by Satan. When possession takes place, it's always by a demon or demons. And oftentimes we read about their actions or the way that they act, which is different than a normal acting human being because of that possession. There is nothing in Judas's actions to suggest that he became demon-possessed and was unable to control his actions. We, don't not, we do not see that. We can take that and put it aside. And we understand, we read a few, in a few, a few times, Judas was fully responsible for his actions. He opened the door wide of his heart to Satan, to Satan's sway. Once Judas took the morsel, it sealed the deal, the deal with the devil. He gave himself over completely to being led by Satan. Judas, taking the morsel from Jesus, was shutting the door completely from any last offer of mercy and grace from the Lord. What a dangerous spot to be in. Judas's heart was under the control of Satan. Judas was now fully surrendered to his dominion. All in. So the question is, did Satan actually, the actual being, Satan the devil, jump into Judas? and possess him, and then jump back out again? Well, if you read it, at first, the text seems to imply this. At first glance, he came and went into him. I don't know. But what I do know is that Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be in two places at once. Does he have a whole army of demons at his Disposal or that wreak havoc? Absolutely. Yes, but we're not talking about demons. We're talking about Satan. With a definite article in the Greek, it is him. We remember who was responsible for the betrayer, betrayal. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. That man. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Who is that man? That would be Judas Iscariot, fully responsible. 
If anyone could ever make the argument, the devil made me do it, Judas would try to do such a thing. But he was fully responsible for his sin. J.C. Ryle explains how Satan works in anyone's life. First, he suggests, then he commands. First, he knocks at the door, then asks permission to come in. Then once admitted, he takes complete possession and rules the whole inward man like a tyrant. Those who point to the devil's power and sway over their lives as rationale, though, for their actions are still responsible for their sin and their actions. So we see with Judas an increased influence by Satan, an increased being given over to the devil. What you do, do quickly, he says. Jesus, in full control throughout all of this, as Luther said, the devil is God's devil. Jesus was fully in line with what the will of God is, and everything was going according to plan. With all the wickedness in our world today, it seems that at times that Satan is triumphant, even in the church. Yet, at the point which was the triumph was was ultimately his defeat, where Christ defeated and conquered Satan at the cross and in the resurrection. He is a defeated foe, yet he still awaits his final destruction. It's like he's on death row and his final execution is coming. Satan is active, a roaring lion, at times disguising himself as an angel of light. Yet he is mortally wounded. As Frederick Leahy says, uh, he is an imposter, a squatter with no rights. He is defeated by Christ, yet is not what he will finally be. So Judas, under full sway, under full control of what the enemy was going to do. He made him a way of putting it, a deal with the devil. And so Judas went to, fourthly, descended into darkness. He descended into darkness. After receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. Now the night time, this tells us more than just the time of day. Judas went out. The hour of darkness began. Judas fully turned his back on the light, and his soul was as dark as night. Like Cain, he went away from the presence of the Lord. Like Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Just, just as Ahithophel betrayed a close friend, David. Judas's feet were swift to shed innocent blood. The night not only refers to the time, but also a description of the soul of Judas. Darkened. 
that he left and that it was night are observable events. Judas left Jesus. Judas's heart was as dark as night. There are other specific warnings in Scripture of men who went astray. Nothing tells us that they returned either. 1 Timothy 1, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Paul also spoke of a man by the name of Demas. Demas, having loved the present world, has deserted me. So this betrayal, this broken-hearted betrayal that Jesus Christ went through, that he experienced by one who was supposed to be his friend, Judas Iscariot. And we see with John, the consistent, uh, he was consistently close to Christ. Physically, yes, he was close to Christ at the meal, but we look at that and we say, I want to be drawing near to Christ so that I may ask things of my blessed Savior, anything that I, that I want of my Lord and my God. And Judas was dealing with the devil. He descended into darkness. And finally, we see the, the light of life, the light of life. When we consider Judas's actions, his devilish seeds that were planted, that marinated over time, and grew to the point where it was, he was given over to Satan as a pawn to be used willingly, taking the morsel. Judas spent much time with Jesus, much time with the people of God, Yet his heart was dark. Judas did not respond to the grace Christ offered by turning to Christ. Instead, he turned away from Christ. Perhaps there's an urgent need for some here to respond to the offer of his grace while the offer is still on the table. Those who continue to reject the grace offered by Jesus... The gospel that extends forgiveness, salvation, hope, and peace by faith alone to all who come to Christ by repentance and faith. Those who continue in this rejection and unbelief will take that bite of the morsel at one point in their life and it will be then too late. They don't know when that time is. We don't know where that time is. The opportunity is today. The opportunity is now. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Jesus is the light of the world. To refuse and to reject the light means to choose darkness. The good news, though, is all who are willing may come. Jesus is still calling men and women out of darkness into his marvelous light to the light of life. Jesus says, I am the, the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life.
And 1 John 5, verse 1, verse 5 tells us, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Believer, perhaps maybe there is a a darkened path that you are tempted to go down. Maybe you are at the very door. Jesus says, come back to me, to the light, for he is light. He offers forgiveness, grace, mercy. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is in control of all things. Judas had wicked motives, but God's purpose was to redeem a multitude of lost sinners through the blood shed by Jesus Christ. Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 that he was delivered over by their predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. God used a traitor, a betrayer, and other wicked men in his plan of providing salvation through Jesus Christ. Let us not be discouraged, dismayed, disheartened, or in despair. Instead, let us Trust the Lord in our trials and tribulations at this time. For we know the Scripture well. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you sent the light of the world who stepped down into darkness, opened our eyes, and let us see. Here we are, Lord, this morning to worship. Here we are to bow down. Here we are to take your word and receive it, the word implanted. Here we are to say that you are our God. Thank you, Lord, that you have opened the eyes of those in darkness to where we have sight. Thank you that when you bring us into light and we're tempted to go down the roads of darkness, whatever those may be, you shine your light on us The Holy Spirit of God convicts us. You always receive us back like a loving father receives a child. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve your mercy, your grace, and your forgiveness. Yet you showed it to us anyway. What greater love has no no man than this than one who would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus, a friend of sinners, 
the Lord, our Savior, Redeemer. God, that you would oppress upon those who may be in here who have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, that there is still time today. Thank you, Lord, for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.